Here we go. You're listening to Wednesday's Law and Gospel on this December the 8th in the year of our Lord 2020. I'm sorry, December the 9th in the year of our Lord 2020. I'm Tom Baker, and we're continuing our study of CFW Walther's lectures that he had given almost over a year to students. We're on Thesis 21. We started it last week, and Walther had begun this just a few weeks after his wife had died. And so there's a real emphasis on baptism in it. Let me read Thesis 21 because there's two evening lectures we did last week's, and now we're going to do the new one. You are not rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the word of God if you teach that the sacraments save, and here comes Latin, ex opera operato. That is merely by their outward performance. Uh, Sometimes the English talks about it being used in a mechanical way. And Walther even gives an example of this. In the Prussian government, which they had fled from because they were being forced to worship with Christians who disagreed with them, the government preferred that jobs be given only to people who were baptized Christians. So those interested in such jobs were often baptized in a particular church in Berlin. And it was right near a department store, similar in prestige to like Macy's in New York City. And the pastors of this church baptized any job-seeking civil servant as a formality. In fact, the church received the nickname, the Baptism Emporium. Now, these people did not believe in Jesus Christ, but by being baptized, they were then considered to be Christians. And so that baptism was an invalid baptism because there was no faith in that baptism. And that's what is meant ex opera operato, that just because you get baptized doesn't necessarily mean that it was a valid baptism. So we're now starting the 34th evening lecture. Walther did this on September the 11th, 1885. And here's how he begins. Anyone who insists that pure doctrine is a very important matter in his day is immediately suspected of not having the right Christian spirit because the very term pure doctrine is considered taboo and is outlawed. Now, that's very similar to some who have a notion of postmodernism that there is no such thing as real truth, that therefore real truth escapes us. And therefore, for anybody to say, I have the pure doctrine, that would be really quite wrong. And this came about because 
the modern historical critical theologians knew full well that they don't have the doctrine that has been called pure doctrine and that truly is pure. For example, when I was at the seminary where a number of the professors fell away from pure doctrine and became part of Seminex, I was taught, for example, by one professor that Jesus did not rise from the dead physically, but only spiritually. And another professor did not think that homosexual activity was wrong. And then they would really reinterpret passages in the Bible, especially the miracles of Jesus, to show that they were not really supernatural. Uh, For example, with the feeding of the 5,000, I was taught that people had brought along lunches anyway, because they knew they were going to be gone listening to Jesus. And therefore, when the little boy gave his lunch, they felt kind of embarrassed not to share their lunches with others who were hungry. And that's how 5,000 people were fed. So this historical critical method, pure doctrine was not really part of the proper teaching. And they also said that pure doctrine does not exist at all. It's a dream world. Uh, For example, we were taught that God did not create the world in seven days, but through evolution and many other such false teachings. In fact, Paul Zimmerman was the head of a committee that questioned these professors, and there were only five of them that were confessional, and the rest were not. And it was interesting, one said, yes, uh, when God saw two monkeys, he called one Adam and one Eve. That's on page 97 of the transcript of these questions. Walter continues, to hate pure doctrine is to hate the truth. I mean, who doesn't understand that? Because it comes from the pure word of God. And therefore, we're living in that time too, when a lot of people hate pure doctrine, especially in the area of morality. And Walter says that is proof that we are living in a terribly miserable era. Remember, he's talking to the students. And he says, it's horrible how German theologians are not ashamed to respond to this by saying, bah, we seek the truth, but only a conceited, self-satisfied person would claim to have achieved it. And so they look down on those who say, this is the truth of Christianity. If anyone comes to you and does not bring proper teaching, Walther says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, I, as a pastor, 
I would go to homes of members and encourage them to invite folks from the neighborhood to their house on a Sunday night, and there'd be a little something to eat, some donuts and some drinks, and I would teach them a Bible study. Walter is saying, if the members did not believe that I brought proper teaching, I should not be welcome into their house. Walter says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. This is from Titus chapter 1, 9 to 11. And they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. The circumcision party said, yeah, once you become a believer, whether Jew or Gentile, you need to be circumcised. Well, that was a ceremonial law that no longer is in effect in Jesus Christ. Walther says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, a single false teaching poisons the entire body of Christian doctrine. Even as a little poison dropped into pure water produces a deadly portion. A kind of a, a example of that, there are actually Christians who believe that the way you are saved is you make a decision to believe, which of course is impossible for an unbeliever to do that, but that's what they teach. And because of that false teaching, they don't baptize infants because how can an infant make a decision to believe? Good example of how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There were false teachers in the early church like Arius, Nestorius, and Pelagius. And there were men that contradicted them, Athanasius, Cyril, and Augustine. And had they not stood up against them, as early as the 4th and 5th centuries, the church would have lost the primary article of the Christian faith. And so for Walther, God had awakened tools such as these three men in order to counteract false teachings. Now, these efforts are therefore necessary to defend the truth and oppose every doctrinal error. If you listen to KFUO, you'll hear very many statements made against what other people believe that are not according to the Bible. That's the purpose. The gospel simply states, believe and you will be saved. While the law issues the order, do this and you will live. In other words, C.F.W. Walther is talking about a distinction between law and gospel that a lot of people don't understand. So if you're telling somebody to do something in order to be saved, it's going to be impossible for them to do it because you are not saved 
by obedience to the commandments. Therefore, the word that is preached will not benefit a person unless he believes it. Then neither will being baptized and taking communion benefit anyone who does not believe. Telling a person that he is saved by faith alone means nothing else than that he is saved by grace. He quotes Romans 4.16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Any teaching contrary to this doctrine, that is any teaching claiming that people are saved by their works or by their efforts, but that denies that we are saved by grace alone, is an error that subverts the foundation of Christian doctrine. This is why people are relieved to hear the gospel, because they know they cannot obey the commandments of God perfectly, and therefore they're disturbed as to whether or not they're going to be saved. But it's clear from the teaching of the scripture that you are saved, particularly by trusting the promises as found in the gospel. Like Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Walther says, Mark doesn't write whoever is baptized and believes, but the reverse. Faith is the most necessary thing, and baptism is something to which faith clings. In fact, the Lord speaks about whoever does not believe will be condemned. In Acts 8, it says, if you believe with your whole heart, it may well be possible that you are saved. Philip answers and says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Walther focuses on the harmful effects of unbelief. And so it's very important to understand this. At our baptism, it's not we who are performing any good work, but God. So when I'm asked the question, how do you know you're saved? I don't say, well, I made sure that I got myself baptized. No, I say, I am baptized. It's a passive, not something I did, but something that Christ has done for me. So this is very important to understand these. True remembrance of Christ, for example, do this in remembrance of me in the Lord's Supper, means that the believing communicant believes and reflects on the fact that this body is given for me. If you think going to communion and receiving the body of Christ and drinking his blood is disgraceful, it is not disgraceful to hold fast to the word of his promise. Now, a really important point 
Walter makes is from Romans 4.11. If you ask, when was Abraham saved? And you say it is when he was circumcised. Well, you're mixed up. Because Abraham received the sign of circumcision after he was declared righteous because he had faith in believing the promise of God about through Sarah would come one who would be a blessing to all the world. In his circumcision, he merely received a seal of the righteousness of faith. So God knows how slow we are to believe. Even after we've become believers, it is an act of great love on his part to add external signs to his word and then attach promises to them. For the sacraments are connected with and are understood in God's word. That's really important. The Lutheran Church regards the holy sacraments as the most sacred, gracious, and precious treasure on earth, and is firmly convinced that God is not a miserable master of ceremonies who decrees that rites we are to observe when receiving a person into our communion. The gospel is not to be compared to the Masonic Society. The Masonic Society of Freemasonry, they had pushed God aside and adapted elements of the occult to create a false history, secret ceremonies as part of a quasi-religious gentleman's club. No. When did the Lutheran Church Walter asks, at any time, claim that people are saved by the mere external use of the sacraments. For example, I was an orderly at Lutheran Hospital where I met my wife in Fort Wayne, and I always liked the night shift. It wasn't that much to do, plus the cafeteria was open for cheeseburgers and such. But often I would walk by the room where they had the babies that had been born. Now, I could have gone in, there was nobody there guarding it, and baptized every one of those children. But that would be an invalid baptism because it wasn't done according to the rite that God had set up. In other words, it would be invalid baptism. Parents didn't know about it. There were no promises to bring the children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, we need to remember that the historical critical theologians interpret the chief thing in the sacrament to mean the word of God that is recited in connection with the sacrament. That's not a correct. That's not at all what the sacrament, the catechism means. In this place, it says the chief part of the sacrament, as far as the effect is concerned, is the words given for you and shed for you. 
The Confessions of the Lutheran Church, Augsburg Confession, Article 13. They were instituted to awaken and confirm faith in those who use them. Therefore, we must use the sacraments in such a way that faith, which believes the promises offered and set forth through the sacrament, is increased. See, the purpose of the sacrament is to awaken and strengthen the faith. If a person imagines that his sins would be forgiven by merely eating and drinking the Lord's Supper, he's under a delusion because, as the modernists claim, when they say that it implants in humans the seeds of immortality, that is nothing but a dream of human speculative theology. The apology in the confessions indicates ceremonies and external things instituted by human beings are not sacraments according to this way of thinking. The three items that are mentioned as sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution are truly sacraments. Therefore, Walther says, any so-called sacrament to which a promise of grace has not been added, we cannot accept that as a sacrament. For example, there are some teachers who believe that when Jesus was the rock that dispensed water, that that is the very same as what happened at Pentecost that that was a baptism, and therefore it is a sacrament. But if you take a look at those verses, God is not pleased with the people who received the water. And, and therefore, there's no indication that the gift of grace, forgiveness, was given simply by drinking the water that came from the rock. Yet Jesus is the rock and dispenses many things. Uh, some theologians believe give us this day our daily bread is referring to the Lord's Supper. But if you read Luther's small catechism, it's referring to all of the temporal gifts that God gives to us. And there's nothing in there about it being the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So we baptize with water. Baptism cleanses from sin, bringing sanctification, regeneration, and renewal. Those imagine that baptism must be for a different pur purpose, that it is not just for regeneration maintain that the Lord's Supper must be for another purpose, to unite us with the body of Christ. Walther says these are human fabrications. For this reason, the Lord does not merely command us to baptize. Remember what he says, whoever believes and is baptized 
will be saved. In the pulpit, the word is audible. In the sacrament, it is visible. That's really quite a difference. And so what we're talking about here is baptism does indeed save. But it's not the mere doing of the work that makes me righteous before God and grants me grace. It is through faith that I trust the promises of God and receive the blessing of salvation through faith. Faith is definitely that which is necessary. That's why we take people through confirmation. Children don't receive the Lord's Supper because you can receive it actually to become sick and even die without understanding it. And that's the purpose of teaching them the catechism. Next week, we'll begin with the 35th evening lecture of CFW Walter and lead into the next thesis number 22. I'm Tom Baker, and on tomorrow's Law and Gospel with Wes Reimnitz, we're going to be talking about Law and Gospel as the third use of the law. What does that mean? Join us and be comforted. Till then, God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.